And once again, good morning. We have recently started a new study here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday mornings through the Gospel of John. So if you would turn to chapter 1. And as we said last time, the main purpose for which John wrote his gospel was so that unbelievers would come to believe that he is the Son of God and Savior of the world, and that by believing would have eternal life in his name. Now, of course, John knew that only the true Christ could save us from our sins and give us eternal life, and because of it, he spends the first 18 verses of his gospel introducing us to the true Jesus. Scholars call these 18, this 18-verse 18 introduction the prologue, the prologue. And uh, you see, even in the Apostle John's day, there had already come numerous people claiming to be the Christ of God, the Messiah. And these false Christs had led many astray. Uh, therefore, I'm uh, calling these messages on John's prologue to his gospel, Will the Real Jesus Please stand up, kind of taking it from that game show to tell the truth. But um, that's a good way to look at this. John is wanting the real Jesus to stand up. Now, again, John desperately wants you to have eternal life, which he knows can only come by believing in Christ. But which one? Which Christ? There are many Christs being presented today by many different groups. Are we talking about the Christ of the Jehovah's Witnesses? or the Christ of the Mormon Church, or the Christ of the New Age Movement. You see, simply believing, believing in a Christ is not going to bring you eternal life. You have to believe in the Christ of the Bible, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. The one of whom Peter said, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Therefore, guys, our understanding of the true Christ becomes critical. If we're going to receive, and many of you have already, but if people are going to receive eternal life through him. So with that in mind, John opens his gospel by giving us eight attributes or distinguishing marks of the true Christ. So no one would mistake an imposter for the genuine the genuine Christ of God. As we've already said, the study of Christ from Scripture is what the theologians refer to as Christology. And John is giving us, in his introduction or prologue, a crash course on Christology in an effort to teach us about the true Christ, the only one who can impart eternal life. Now, so far, we've covered the first three verses of John's Gospel. We're moving. And uh, we've covered the first three verses of chapter 1, which contain the first four points of John's presentation of Christology. They are as follows. We've already studied these. I won't get into them again. But first of all, point number one, the, the eternal preexistence of Christ. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And we said last time the Greek is... Uh, he was in beginning, was the word. And he was in beginning with God. No definite article. What is John trying to communicate? He's not trying to focus on any one beginning in particular. What he's saying is, look, pick any beginning you want. Okay, Go a thousand years before the creation of all things. Or ten thousand years, or ten billion years, or ten trillion years 
Back before the creation of the physical realm, Jesus already existed. Jesus already existed. The pre-existence, the eternal pre-existence of Christ, again, pointing to Jesus' deity. Number two, we looked at the equality of Christ with God, middle of verse one, and the word was with God. God. The Greek is prostanthan. It means to eyeball to eyeball with, on an on a, uh, equal level with God. Well, if you're on an equal level with God, you have to be God. And that's the third one we looked at, the oneness of Christ with God, end of verse one, and the word was God. Then John goes on to continue to prove the deity of Christ by uh, talking about the omnipotence of Christ, verse three. The word omnipotence means all-powerful. Jesus Christ is all-powerful, manifesting that power through the creation. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing in the physical or spiritual universe, angels, people, planets, whatever, nothing was made uh, without him, and and without him, nothing was made that was made. All right, that brings us to the fifth lesson in our study of Christology. Another, another attribute that is inherent to the nature of God himself and only to God, and that is the life of Christ, or in other words, the life that resides in or is inherent in Christ that he then can impart to others. We read in verse 4, just the first four words of verse 4, in him was life. When John says, in him was life, he's not talking about physical life. He already covered that in verse 3. The Greek word used here for life is zoe, and this word refers to spiritual life. The word bios, from which we get the word biology, is the Greek word for physical life. So zoe is the word for spiritual life. And John is saying that not only is Jesus, listen, the founder of all physical life, verse 3, but he is also the fountain from which all spiritual life flows as well. The life that Jesus gives, guys, is a dynamic life, a fruitful life, a fulfilled life, a joyful life. Look, it's an overflowing life. As he himself expressed to the woman by the well in John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God? Salvation. And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, because he asked her for a drink of water, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Look, 54 times in John's gospel, he talks about everlasting life or eternal life because he desperately wants us to drink from the fountain of life jesus christ some of that living water eternal life okay that only comes from him that only he can give only jesus can give eternal life but what is this life okay it's eternal life but what's the nature of it um what is it all what does it look like okay and we know that Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, I have come that they might have life, and that more abundantly. So whatever it is, he wants us to have it, and he wants us to have it in overflowing portions, abundantly. 
Look, if I were to go, if I were to go around just on the streets or to the mall, whatever, if I were to go around asking people today to define the concept of life, for many it would be a little hard to nail down. Most people today would probably, I think they would probably try to define life in terms of a quality of living. A quality of living. They would say that life is about achieving a certain level of happiness, right? Based on material possessions and affluence. But this abundant life that Jesus spoke of isn't external, as many believe and teach. It isn't an abundance of money or possessions or earthly success. This life is spiritual in nature. And so often Jesus was speaking spiritually and his disciples were interpreting it to mean something physical. Okay? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Okay? And they, oh, he's mad because we didn't bring any bread. I'm not mad about you not bringing bread. I'm talking about spiritual leaven. I'm talking about the deception or the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and so on. Right? Um, but Jesus spoke in spiritual terms always or quite often using the physical or the literal to communicate spiritual truth but in John 6:63 he said the words that i speak to you are spirit and life spirit he was he came to give us spiritual life look money can buy you things but not happiness books but not wisdom money can buy you a quality of living but not a quality of life the first is outward and the second is inward. In fact, Jesus warned us against trying to define our lives in terms of our possessions when he said, take heed and beware of covetousness. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things they possess. You see, guys, eternal life, Zoe, isn't just a quantity of life. It is a quality of life. The thing that makes eternal life so wonderful and so appealing is not its quantity, <laughs> that it never ends, but its quality, richness and fullness is the idea. Now, eternal life wouldn't be appealing if it simply meant life forever, life that stretched out into eternity, never-ending life. That wouldn't be really a blessing if it was a never-ending life, life of pain and hopelessness and emptiness, right? I mean, people in hell are going to live forever, but that's not a blessing. So just have, having eternal life or life that never ends. I mean, if you walked up to somebody who is uh, in a hospital bed, kept alive by machines, who couldn't move, couldn't feed themselves, barely conscious, and you walked up and whispered in their ear, how would you like to live forever? They say, are you kidding me? I'm praying for death. Death is the only hope I have to be released from this body. See, when Jesus said, I came that you might have life, eternal life, the, the, the term is Ionius Zoe, uh, age-abiding life, never-ending life. The concept, it's kind of like the Jews when they said uh, shalom. What does that mean? Well, it means peace. But in the Jewish mindset, shalom was you were wishing somebody, yes, peace, but also everything that made life a blessing. All the fruitfulness and all the, the joy. Well, the same is true with everlasting life. The life that God gives is a life that, yes, it never ends, but that wouldn't make it a blessing if it also didn't include the fact that it was life in all of its fullness and richness and joy and blessing, the most wonderful life you can ever imagine, and then it would go beyond that, stretch out into eternity. 
You know, there was something wonderful about Jesus when he walked on the earth. Something that was tremendously attractive. And consequently, people were drawn to him. Um, they flocked to be with him. We know that James and John left a prosperous fishing business to follow him. Matthew left an influential and affluent job with the Roman government to follow him. Simon the Zealot left his radical political beliefs to follow him. Zacchaeus gave away his money to follow him. Prostitutes left their profession to follow him. Parents brought their children to be near him. All kinds of people gathered around Jesus. Something was attracting them to him, but what was it? In a word, it was life. Not a quantity of life, a quality of life. He exuded something that they didn't have. Uh, something about him. He, he radiated with life. It was a spiritual life. And that's what they were drawn to. Look, spiritual life is to have your spirit resurrected and connected to God by his spirit. It's what the Bible calls in John 3 verse 7 to be born again or born from above. Essentially, guys, this is the life of God inside of a person. You see, in the Garden of Eden, when God first created men, uh, Adam and Eve, he made them alive. In fact, he made them a threefold being, body, soul, and spirit. Although in their case, it was spirit, soul, and body. Uh, the spirit was uppermost. The spirit was dominant, most important. And the body, important, but was on the lower rung. Today, it's reversed. So we get, everything is body and then soul. But here's the deal. God said to Adam and Eve that you can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of that tree, you're going to die. Well, they disobeyed God and ate from that tree. And what happened was, yes, they set in process the physical process of decay and death. We call it the, uh, the second law of thermodynamics, the entropy loss. Uh, things are wearing out, growing old, and going from order to disorder and from life to death and so on. But what happened immediately was their spirit died. You see, God is Father, Son, Spirit. Man was spirit, soul, and body. And we connected with God, spirit to spirit. It's that connection that allowed the life of God to flow into Adam and Eve. When they disobeyed God, their spirit died. They were severed from God in the sense they no longer had fellowship, communion. And their spirit now dead, their nature got flipped upside down where the body was dominant. We see it all over the place. And the consciousness or the soul lived only to satisfy the body appetites. Body became everything, as we see in our world today. But when Jesus came to give us life, those that would receive him, and many of you in this room, the instant you received Christ, your spirit was resurrected, born again. And again, your nature was flipped right side up, spirit, soul, and body. And you were once again connected to God, spirit to spirit. This allowed God's life to flow into you. God's heart to become a part of you. Uh, it allowed the spirit to illuminate your understanding of his word. Uh, it gave you new desires, a new worldview. You wanted to read the Bible. You wanted to tell others about Jesus. This was, and we'll talk more about it in a second, but... This was an evidence that you became now a resurrected spirit being, in a sense. 
Paul mentions this in Ephesians 2 verse 1. He said, And you he made alive who at one time were dead in trespasses and sins. Now conversely, spiritual death is when the soul is disconnected or separated from God through sin. And we all know Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 where God says, You know, the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, neither is my ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins have separated you from your God. And again, this happened in the Garden of Eden. But once a person receives Christ and is born again, we can get into sin still. We can get off and walk away from God for a time and and, uh, get back into the old life. And God is saying, look, sin will always separate you from me. It did in the very beginning when Adam fell. He sinned for all of us. And severed all, we were all born dead in trespasses and sins. But even as children of God, once we give our heart to Christ and are reconnected to God, we can still backslide. We can still walk away. And at that time, we kind of separate ourselves from God on a practical level. Praise the Lord. I don't believe the Bible teaches we ever lose our salvation. We'll always be connected to God positionally. But practically, we can, you know, sever that fellowship And what happens? You dry up. And because none of us lives in a vacuum, when the life of God isn't really flowing anymore, the joy, the peace, and all that, what happens? You gravitate back to the world uh, to grab for some of the happiness you used to have in the world. They get Christians going back to drinking, going back to smoking dope and things like that. They need to come back. John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we are reconnected to God in fellowship. But in, in John chapter 1, verse 4, John said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You'll notice a reoccurring theme in John's gospel, and that is he connects spiritual life and light. Spiritual life and light are inextricably connected to each other in John's gospel, just like the sun and sunlight are inextricably connected to each other in our solar system. Sunlight radiates from the sun, just as spiritual light radiates from Christ, who is life. As he said himself in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And there, and often throughout John's gospel and the New Testament, life is referring to spiritual truth, spiritual truth, including the gospel. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4 for just a minute. When you see the connection between light, which is being used spiritually in John's gospel and throughout the New Testament oftentimes, a reference to spiritual truth, including the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul is talking about how the devil, the God of this world, the God of this age, has blinded people in this world who don't believe. And he keeps them, unbelievers, by blinding them to the truth. He said, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The devil wants to keep people in darkness. And Jesus Christ is a light. One author put it this way, he said, The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, is nothing more than the radiating manifest life of God shining in His Son. 
So light is God's life manifested in Christ. And well, that's where it starts, obviously. I mean, once we accept Christ, God moves inside of us. Peter said we become partakers of the divine nature. Jesus said in John um, 15 in the upper room, uh, I will come to you, I will be with you through the Holy Spirit. So once we accept Christ, God moves in, and God makes us now light. Our life, first of all, becomes a source of light, but then we have the truth of God, His Word, which we then share. So the light of our life being changed draws people. We share with them the gospel, which can save them if they embrace it. But I want you to notice the order of verse 4. It's significant. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. See it there? In him was life, spiritual life. And the life was the light of men. I want you to understand. Every guru, religious huckster, false prophet, and phony messiah that comes on the scene says, I've got light, and my light will give you life. You know, Scientology has come to the forefront in the last year uh, due to Lee Remini's series on A&E called Scientology and the Aftermath. She grew up in the Church of Scientology. Her mom got into it. And so her mom brought her into it, and she grew up in that system and came to realize at one point how utterly wicked this system is, how corrupt, uh, how it is filled with lies and flat-out evil that's inherent in this false religious system. And so the series is exposing Scientology for what it is, and she's taken a lot of heat uh, if you know anything about the Church of Scientology, you oppose them and they go after you. They claim that you're a pedophile. They try to uh, get people to rise up and say that they, they know you've uh, abused children. They're, it's a very wicked organization. They will follow you around. They'll intimidate you and your car and everything else. Did you know, though, the founder of Scientology was L. Ron Hubbard? L. Ron Hubbard basically went around saying, I've got light and my light will give you life. In his book, Dianetics, he claimed that through his light, his truth, uh, you can change the pattern of your brain waves. And once you change the pattern of your brain waves, you can, waves, you can thus change the pattern of your thinking. And by doing so, listen, you will have a new and dynamic life. But if you've ever studied the life of Hubbard himself, you'd see a man who for years lived such a reclusive life that his own family didn't know where he was or if he was even alive or dead. He was so paranoid he couldn't be around people. So he lived on his yacht and sailed it all over the place. Like I said, his family never knew at any given time uh, where he was, what he was doing, if he was even alive still. When he died, his oldest son, who was a part of his organization, said this, and I quote, my dad was the greatest fraud of this century, end quote. This man claimed to have light that would bring others life. But his own life was a miserable disaster. I remember in the 70s, another Messiah-like leader that many followed, whose name was Jim Jones. Jim Jones was another man who said, I have light, 
I have light, and if you follow my light, you will have life. And so over 900 people followed him down to the jungle of Guyana in South, uh, South America, where they established the People's Temple of Jonestown. Jones eventually committed the mass murder-suicide of 918 of his followers, including almost 300 children, using cyanide mixed with Kool-Aid. He said, I've got the light, and my light will give you life. And yet, he brought nothing to his followers but death. Now, we can go on and on, but I, I think you get the message in that many have come, and as Jesus said, many will yet come, claiming to have light that will bring life, and yet the only thing that they will bring is deception and death. There is only true life, Zoe, in Jesus, the true Christ. Zoe life is a life of, it's a life of richness, fullness, purpose, meaning, joy. No false Christ can impart life, and that's John's point. The fifth point in his study of Christology is that in him is life. There is, no, there is not life in any other but the true Christ. In fact, he went on to say in his first epistle, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life life. Look, one of the ways we know that Jesus is the true Christ, and John is pointing this out, is because those that receive him, embrace him, he gives to them new life. Everybody in this room that has received Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, you can testify to this. Before we knew Christ, we had physical life, and maybe we went to church, well, we didn't know God in our, we didn't really, we were not really connected with him. We had religion. Religion gives people the um, illusion. There's a connection with God. You know, I go to church. I surround myself with statues, with paintings on the ceiling of God and angels and clouds and stained glass windows with the, with the apostles. And, uh, there's candle and in, candles and incense and so on and so forth. And I walk in and I get the illusion that I'm in the presence of God, that something spiritual is happening with the lighting of the candles and the incense and, and whatever else people do. There is not life there. Jesus Christ did not come to bring religion. He came to bring a relationship. And I've said it many times. Let me say it again. God does not want religion from you. He wants a relationship with you. And that only happens when you give your heart to Christ and are born of the Spirit and reconnected to God. And I'll tell you what, when that happened, you changed. You experience a transformation. The things you wanted to do, you no longer wanted to do. You used to party and drink and take drugs. You don't want to do that anymore. The things you didn't want to do, go to church, read the Bible, hang out with Christians and pray and evangelize. Now you love to do those things. This is a testimony that you are not the same person you used to be because Jesus Christ is inside you through his Holy Spirit and he has given you the life of God. No false prophet can give you, or phony Messiah can give you life. John is saying the true Christ gives life because life resides in him and in him alone, being a part of the Godhead. 
I mean, look, as I just said, you know, all the false prophets, false Christ, assorted religious con men, they all claim to have light, don't they, spiritual truth? And then all who follow them will receive a new and dynamic life. But with Jesus, the order is exactly opposite. They say, I have light, and it will bring you life. Jesus said, I'm life, and I've come to give you light. See, is that important? Yeah, it's very important. Because only, you have to have life to produce life. I mean, life only comes from God and what he has created. Example, um, an apple tree, we'll say. Um, has to be alive before it can produce apples. Inside every apple is seeds that if you plant them in the ground, it will bring forth new life, new apple trees, right? The same is true with us. Jesus is life, and he has sown into our hearts through his word and other people that witnessed to us, but he has sown into our hearts his truth. When we receive that truth, well, it grew. Our faith was germinated. Uh, we became new creations. Uh, we be, the Spirit of God moved in, of course. And now we become a source of life to others as we sow the seed of the word to them and into their hearts. But look, at it, guys, John is saying basically, let me just paraphrase, death can't produce life, darkness can't produce light. If there is life and there's true light, it's got to be from God, therefore Jesus is from God. The light or the truth that flows from Jesus is just like the sunlight that flows from the sun. Now, here's the thing. Jesus told us, not directly, but through his word, uh, but at one point in his ministry, he turned to his disciples after he said, I am the light of the world. He then said, now, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. What did he mean? Once they received him as their Lord and Savior, of course, the Spirit of God moved in. And God now lived inside of them and us. It's the life of God. And we go out into this world, we are a light. We act different, we think different. We try to give kindness for, you know, uh, abuse, um, love for hate. We, 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 we manifest God's character to the people of this world. They see that we're different. Some run from the light, some don't want the light. John 3, right? I mean, you know, some, some don't want the light because they love the darkness. Others, though, are attracted to the light because you have something that they want, they need. They see in you the joy, the peace, the love. All these qualities are they're really the fruit of the Spirit, yeah, but the attributes of God because God lives inside of us. But guys, as the light of the world, continuing the ministry that Jesus began, he commissioned us before he ascended back to the Father to take that light, the gospel, into all the world and share it with everyone we meet. But listen, again, you start with eternal life and then it flows from you to others in the form of light or in other words, saving truth. Turn to John 7. And verse 37. Now it's the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? And on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. His way of saying, receive me for salvation. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Once Jesus lives in your heart, you become a well where he has deposited living water, the life of his spirit and truth. And now you give that truth to others, but it has to be there first before it can flow through you. In other words, you have to be saved before you can be a channel of God's life to others, right? Now listen, what did John mean when he said that Jesus was the light of men? One author put it this way, he said, and I quote, By this title, Jesus is revealed as the one who knows God the Father and who makes him known. Light is a universal image for the illumination of the mind through understanding. Before Christ came into the world, the world was in darkness. The world did not know God. Christ came. His light shone before men. Then men had light of the knowledge of the glory of God, end quote. Let me put it another way. In other words, the idea behind Jesus being the light of men is that Jesus came into a world of spiritual darkness to light fallen man's way back to God. He came into a world of lies with God's truth, and he said the truth will set you free. The truth was light. The truth was lighting man's way back to God, even as David said in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, of course, Satan didn't want fallen man's path lit so they could find their way back to God. So he has opposed the light from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, but especially when Jesus came, he really ramped up the attacks and is going on today. He opposed the light. John went on to say in verse 5, which we won't even study today, we'll start looking at it next week, but he says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The Greek word means to overcome or extinguish. The light of God's truth through the person of Jesus Christ entered a world of lies, deception, and darkness. The devil rushed over to try to squash it, to do what he can to put it out, Beautiful thing about light, it's stronger than darkness, even as life is stronger than death. And so Satan tried to extinguish it, to overcome it, couldn't do it. And we'll talk more about that next time because it gets into the whole idea of spiritual warfare. And guys, most Christians have no idea the depth or the breadth of the warfare we are facing. And it's being ramped up even as we speak because the time is drawing near for Christ's return. The devil knows that, so he's flooding the zone with lies. He is trying to confuse people with, with as many lies as possible, and the church is not exempt. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who are proposing all kinds of lies that they think is the truth. And it's confusing many people, but the truth is always stronger than deception. Years ago, I worked with a guy. His name was Steve. I was a new Christian. I worked for an oil company in the area. I was a blue-collar guy, and my job working midnights was to uh, load gasoline trucks with gasoline and all, uh, which was then taken to the gas station. I also worked with 50-foot, uh, 2 million-gallon tanks that received product from the refinery of jet fuel and uh, diesel fuel and, uh, at that time, uh, leaded gasoline and unleaded. 
And so most of the truck drivers started coming in about 5 in the morning. And um, so Steve came in early. He didn't work for the company uh, I worked for. He was a contractor, worked for a separate boss, but got the gas out of our yard. And uh, walked in one day into the lunchroom, okay, and saw a book on the table that I was reading. It was a book on the Millennium, the Millennial Kingdom. I think it was by John Walvert. I said F.F. Bruce, first service, but I think it was John Walvert. And I said, what is this? I began to talk to him, and I began to witness to him, and so on. And uh, he was very interested. And so what happened was he went back to his boss, who was a Jehovah's Witness. And he would tell him what I said, and the, his boss said, no, 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 he's wrong. It's this, this, and that. Jesus is not, you know, he was a created being. He's not the creator, and blah, blah, blah. And Steve would come back, and he would hit me with all these things. I'd give him some more Bible study. He'd take it back, and his boss would try to unravel it. This went on back and forth for well, a couple weeks, actually, until one day Steve came in early one morning, and he looked forlorn. He looked exasperated. I said, Steve, what's wrong? He goes, I don't know who to believe. You know, you tell me one thing, I go back, he tells me another. I don't know what to believe. I said, okay, here's the thing. The Bible says if you really desire to know God's truth, he'll show it to you. So you forget everything I've told you. You forget everything he's told you. And you just open your Bible, and every time you do, you pray, God, show me the truth. About four days later, he called me. He was so excited. He said, I... Did what you told me. You're right. I see it. God showed me the truth. You were right. Jesus is the Son of God. He was so elated. The truth set him free from the devil's lies. The devil is trying to flood the zone, guys, with all kinds of strange doctrine. And a lot of it's coming to the church. You, you can't imagine what Christians have embraced, or those who call themselves Christians. We don't know where they are with the Lord. But some of the most bizarre doctrines you've ever experience or ever heard of it's causing a lot of unbelievers to say you know what i don't want to go to church all these people believe different things and I, I i'm just you know but let me say something if you really want to know the truth god will show you the truth if your heart is open and you ask him as you read his word he will show you the truth i'm convinced of that but we'll get into more of that next week but let me just end by saying this <laughs> satan is effectively duped the human race, when it comes to the idea of life. He's effectively duped the human race, and for the most part, he's used the advertising industry to promote his lies. Oh, he's used a lot of other avenues as well, but I'm talking right now about this one uh, in particular. Do you know what most people think life is thanks to the advertising industry? You know what most people think life is? Miller time. <laughs> Partying, right? In fact, I went online, I googled beer slogans, and there's a lot of them out there. Every beer company in the world has got a little catchy phrase or slogan or motto. They want to leave an impression in you. When, you. when they say it to you, they don't want you to forget it, okay? Michelob, it doesn't get any better than this. I know a lot of people would beg to differ. Schlitz, everybody heard of Schlitz? My grandfather used to, I think it's out of business now. I even went on YouTube. They had a commercial back in the 70s, okay, for this company. And uh, as, the, you know, as the images finish up, wonderful people and having a great time, you know, this one video guy's on a, on a boat and they're deep sea diving and it's beautiful, you know, and then the announcer comes on. 
you know, basically Schlitz. It's what life is all about. You only go around once in life, so you got to grab for all the gusto you can. <laughs> See, part of the lie is that these commercials only have, you know, young, physically perfect people drinking their beer and having a great time surrounded by beautiful, healthy people, right? I mean, they're pictured in beautiful outdoor settings where they're laughing, they're happy, the very embodiment of success and fulfillment. And the thought that they want to leave you with, the thing that they want to embed in your thinking, so that long after the ad is over with, you won't forget it. I'll sum it up. Here's the essence of it. As you finish watching this, or as you're watching this commercial for their beer, you're thinking, who says I can't have it all? <laughs> and this beer, whatever it is, is part of it. A life of happiness and fulfillment. Look at alcohol, drinking this beer with friends. I mean, why can't I have it all? And partying with my friends, you know, throwing back a few cold ones. I mean, isn't that part of what makes life worth living? Somebody should follow up these commercials with some reality. They should show some drunk in a gutter laying in his own vomit, who started out drinking at parties with friends, thinking that it would make him popular, you know, part of the crowd. One of the beautiful people. Only to see then years later, this person broken, a slave of alcohol, marriage destroyed, uh, children being abused. But we don't see that, of course, because Satan doesn't want us to see that part, does he? Nor Madison Avenue because then they wouldn't be able to sell the beer and promote the lies. And even Christians aren't exempt from the devil's lies and how to have a fulfilled life, hopefully not through beer. But uh, I think Satan has duped even us uh, many times. He's duped us into thinking that success, prosperity, materialism, you know, a nicer car, bigger house, a better job, these are the secrets to living a happy, fulfilled life. And guys, once again, those things might give you an outward quality of living, but they can't give you an inward quality of life. And that's the deception. Satan tries to kind of confuse the issue and substitute what we really need and what we really are looking for, whether we know it or not, a quality of life. He tries to substitute it with a mindset that thinks quality of living. A quality of living is outward. A quality of living is uh, built around how much I make, how much I buy, uh, how much of life I can enjoy with vacations and cars and so on. A quality of living is not a quality of life. Many wealthy people have a gigantically high quality of living, and they're miserable. And many poor people have nothing, but they love Jesus. And inside, they are bubbling up with that eternal life, that joy and and, uh, and love and everything else. Jesus said, when he said, I came that you might have life, of course, many in the church, primarily the word of faith teachers, they're endorsing the idea that what he meant was a quality of living. So Jesus wants you to drive that Cadillac. Jesus wants you to live in the best house in the neighborhood. You're a king's kid. You should have the best, and so on and so forth. Buying right into the lie. When Jesus said, I came that you might have life, not a quality of living, a quality of life that goes way down inside 
as Jesus said to the woman by the well in John 4, it's a life that bubbles up from within you. And you'll never want anything else ever. You'll never thirst after anything this world has to offer. Jesus is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd makes me to lie down as a sheep in green pastures. A sheep will only lie down in green pastures if it's what? Satisfied. I'm satisfied. I, I come over to your house and you have a very beautiful house. God bless you. I don't envy that. I'm happy for you. I can be happy for people that have a lot of nice things. I'm not putting them down. But I don't have to have them. And I have joy, uh, as Peter called it, inexpressible, full of glory. That's the life that bubbles up from within once you know Jesus. So we will get into this in deep t- detail uh, next time. And uh, God willing, we will continue to uh, probe John's prologue, his study in Christology that will help us to better understand the Christ who alone can give eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. It's also a light to our path. And if we walk in the light of your truth, we will never stumble in darkness. And so, Lord, thank you for our Savior, Jesus, the true Christ. In a world of lies and darkness and false messiahs in Christ, Lord, thank you that you've given us the true Christ. You've opened our eyes to to who he is, what he's done. And we thank you, Lord, that he has given to us new life. We are not the people we once were. Oh, and we're not all that we want to be yet, but we're definitely not what we once were. So we thank you, Lord, and ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.